Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Alex Shankman. He is our first agent to ever come on the podcast. Very exciting. Alec is the Senior Vice President of Alternative Programming, Digital Media, Licensing, and Branding for Abrams Artists here in Los Angeles. Alec represents a lot of digital stars, and he also, on the alternative side, has been involved in Duck Dynasty, Wicked Tuna, Gold Rush, Swamp People, the list goes on. Alec and I have a great conversation about the digital landscape, what it is to become a digital star, how it is done, how brands get involved, how the monetization even breaks out. It's really something I've been curious about for so long, and I feel like I finally got those answers. And especially for those producers who have been wondering, what is this digital landscape really all about? So I hope you will enjoy learning about it, too. Hi, Alec. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I've been wanting to have an agent on since I started the podcast. Okay. And frankly, I haven't found the right agent till now. Well, it's a, I'm excited because you're not just an agent, but you also represent a lot of the digital side of things, which is something that I'm trying to cover more in the podcast because, I've, as I've said, that's where I feel like everything's moving. So you kind of encapsulate it all in one person. Yes, my, my division encompasses reality TV, digital media, and licensing. So it's a very kind of multifaceted dynamic division. And did you create that division? I did. I launched the division in 2003 at Abrams Artists. Uh, at the time, it was primarily TV hosts and broadcasters. And then it quickly kind of grew to evolve producers and production companies. And then closer to 06, 07, 08 with the launch of MySpace. Um, and a lot of people don't necessarily kind of give MySpace and Tila te- Tequila credit where credit is due, but Tila arguably was kind of the first talent to truly leverage social media to become a household name. And so when we saw that happen, and we were looking for other ways to discover talent, other ways to build reality shows around interesting people, um, we started very carefully monitoring MySpace and started looking for other talent in the digital realm that we could work with. And by 07, 08, we were pretty aggressively, excuse me, um, working in the the digital world as well. So the department was just kind of growing and evolving as the years went by. Which sounds sort of obvious now, but I think people need to realize that until like even two years ago, most agencies, when you would mention, well, what about digital? At least with, you know, the agents that I've dealt with, they're like, well, well that's not really our thing. Like it was very separate and they were just not getting that that's something they need to be a part of. Yeah, well, what was interesting was from 2007, when we started working in digital, until 2012, let's call it, that five or six year gap, there was almost no money being made at the agencies in digital. And so there were a couple of agencies that were experimenting and starting to get involved, um, you know, and and we take pride in in certainly being one of them. Um, But because there was so little money exchanging hands, a lot of agencies just wrote it off. And I mean, there was frankly even a big part of this. The last strike was over these digital dollars that hopefully would someday matter, but even at the time didn't matter all that much. Uh, and, and so, but flash forward five, six years, a lot has changed and it's a very meaningful business. And it's it's hard now for companies that, that don't have internal resources, human resources that understand digital to quickly dive into it. And it's hard if you aren't already a player in the space to quickly become a player. And so there, there was a lot of value in those of us that were in the trenches before it was monetizable. 
Why is it hard to become a quick player in this particular space? Uh, you know, it's it's like any other aspect of entertainment. You know, you you couldn't upstart a TV and film division now from scratch you, because it's such a mature landscape. Yeah. You couldn't upstart, you know, a literary division. You certainly couldn't upstart a sports division from scratch. They're, they're mature landscapes. Digital isn't quite a mature landscape yet, but it's on its way. And it's, it's you know, we're, we're 10 years into it. So if the buyers, the brands, the ad agencies, the PR firms, the, the folks that are players in that space don't know who you are or don't know who to, how to, you know, to call you, they may know your agency or your management company for other reasons, but if they don't know to call you or or don't don't you know work with you in the digital space, it's it's hard to switch that mentality yeah. very quickly. So you know, right now there's still just a few agencies in that landscape that are that are working with most of the high profile clients and doing most of the deals. So going back to Tila Tequila for a minute. So what was it about the way that she leveraged social media? that kind of started, kicked off the whole thing? Well, so Tila was somebody that nobody had ever heard of. She didn't have a TV show. She wasn't in films. She wasn't, you know, there wasn't a particular reason why she would have a celebrity status. But she leveraged MySpace as it was kind of becoming the place to be digitally and became, you know, the, she was well entrenched with the, the, the folks that worked at MySpace. She was, you know, the, had the most friends on MySpace, was by all accounts on that platform and in that ecosystem famous. And so all of a sudden nightclubs started hiring her. And when she showed up to make an, a personal appearance, people would line up to be there. And, and, you know, over a long enough timeline, MTV gave her a TV show and then she became television famous as well. And she started doing paid, you know, endorsements and, and, and personal appearances and media and, and really became a true force to be reckoned with on multiple platforms as a social media star, as a reality star, as a traditional celebrity. Um, and it was, it was pretty impressive that that was all built off of one platform. Yeah. And what's interesting sort of then versus now is that she had a show and then used social media and the internet to then sort of capitalize on it. Whereas now, so many of the digital stars, quote unquote, they're not, they're only stars online and they're, you know, ostensibly getting way bigger numbers than they ever would with an MTV show or anything else. Right. Well, I mean, you're the, the thing that, that it's a tricky point of friction is your average star, not, not your average person with a YouTube channel, but a star. So let's, let's use that as a, 1 million subscribers and up on on YouTube for example which is which is a a substantial critical mass of, of audience anything north of that i mean you're you're doing pretty well for those folks to make thousands upon thousands of dollars per video that they publish if not more than that tens of thousands hundreds of thousands that's all very possible but even to just make thousands upon thousands of dollars for a single video is common is 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 more or less happening every video Whereas if you launch a show in the unscripted space on TV in the linear world, I mean, here's how that works. You're lucky to get for your first season of an unscripted show on a cable channel, anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000 an episode as your fee. You're lucky. Like that's a good deal. Right. Per episode. Per episode. Right. There are much worse deals than that, <laughs> right. but that is a good deal. Yes. If um, you're not, just to be clear, if you're not a celebrity, if you don't already have 
you know, a track record behind you if you're kind of more right. of a neophyte. It is not a great deal. Right. right. And right. there are there are certainly people that make a lot more money if they have a reason to. Yeah, but that's but, the standard. Absolutely. But if you're in your first season, you know, you're in that range. Yeah. Um, you don't own the content. Right. The network does. You don't control creative network and production do. You don't control distribution, back end or syndication. The network and production do. You don't control merchandising. You know, all sorts of other third parties do. Um, you really don't do much of anything other than you, you're you're told when to show up. You're told what to do. You're told how to perform. You're told when to go away. You sign away a lot of rights. You sign away a substantial amount of exclusivity, and you become prevented from entering into a, a wide array of brand deals and other you know potential ways to make money. And I'll intervene one more point, which yeah. is that potentially, depending on what their job is or what what you're following, they might be sort of giving up that primary income to do this to do show, show, so yeah. that they're already losing that stream potentially or putting it on hold. So all of that gets you twenty five hundred <laughs> to five thousand dollars an episode for a show that hopefully goes somewhere between six and thirteen episodes. Likely won't, but hopefully does, and then thereafter, hopefully gets more seasons. In the digital landscape. The talent, not anybody else, but the talent, control creative, own the content, dictate uh, uh, syndication, backend, merchandising, all of it, and set the price with no exclusivity, with no rules, and and the only thing they have to do is post the video in a consistent way that they're used to con- the posting, which is why the brand is buying on. And for that, they might make five or ten or fifty or hundred thousand dollars or more. But control everything. A year or like what a are video. we talking? A video. A video. So you can make if you have a million or north of a million subscribers, and you have how like let's break down the numbers. I really am curious. Like how many hits do you have to get to reach a hundred thousand for a video? Uh, to make six figures per video, you you are well into the millions of subscribers. Okay. So you know that 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 isn't happening for anybody. Uh, a million or less. Right. That is happening for a lot of people in the several million or more category. And and it's not an insignificant number of people. There are thousands of channels that have a million or more subscribers. It's not, you know, there, it's a lot. There are more channels that on YouTube that have a million or more subscribers than there are channels altogether in cable, right? So right. Um, that's amazing. So, you know, if you if you look at it, if you look at some of the channels that that are on the, you know, the smaller second tier cable channels that are lucky to pull and, and, and I mean it, lucky to pull half a million to a million viewers on an episode of a hit show, oh, right? Yeah. There are so many YouTube channels that do that by not even trying. And so if you're if you're a brand, if you're a sponsor and you're, you know, you have to you have to make the decision. If you are a food brand and you are looking to hit a food audience, you have to give a serious look to what is it going to cost me to produce a commercial, six figures, to you know pay the talent, get everything in, in order, to buy the airtime, you know, also substantial, and to you know strike a, a, a deal of, of how that's going to work with the Food Network or the Cooking Channel, whatever the case might be. What does that cost you, and and what are the chances that somebody is going to fast forward through the commercials? Versus, um, if you take a food or cooking-oriented YouTube channel that has more subscribers than uh, the, and, and, and more views per video than your average, you know, Food Network show might, right. right? And it's not that it's a commercial in between the content; it is the content, 
and it's meaning going, brand integration. Yeah, and so you know, it's it, it's I work in both areas, so yeah. I'm certainly not championing digital over linear, but I'm just saying that is becoming a a thing. It's they, they're both important. They're both growing. You know, digital's growing. There is a debate now where you allocate that money, and and if you can save all the money on the cost of production and save all the money on buying time and just write a check for twenty, fifty, or hundred grand to a talent and hit as many or more people, it's worth considering. It happens all the time. Right. Well, I would think it's going. I mean, maybe it's presumptuous to say this, but I would think it will overtake linear TV in that way because the brands have, like you said, kind of less and less incentive to advertise. I guess you know when you're talking about cable versus broadcast because broadcast is still, I guess, a big win, but. You know, you're because you're going to get those numbers there. But yeah. um, I would think if I'm well, the other thing is, and I thought about this when you were telling when you were saying that, you know, there's Food Network and there's Cooking Channel. That's it. Right. There's HGTV and there's DIY. That's it. Right. Yes. Some of the other brands, uh, some of the other networks dabble in those areas. But you go to digital yep. and you've got 500 cooking channels. You've got more home stuff than you can shake a stick at, right? So sure. there's just more places. And I would think the brands would be hungry, pun intended, to allocate money somewhere else where they could get more play, right? Well, it's, it's also, it's a very authentic, organic place to, to sponsor, right? So if you're a uh, YouTube channel in the cooking space or the home space or, or the lifestyle or beauty vertical, you started at zero. You didn't start on a channel that has that's in 20 million households, that has an average viewer of 500,000. Right. You literally started on a YouTube channel with zero people following you. And so at some point, you became so good at what you do and so interesting in your chosen vertical that the audience has has developed around you is built around you and it's very organic and it's very natural and they believe you and they trust you and so the question is if if you are selling a uh, ford suv you know is it going to be more effective if a a paid actor who went to an audition and booked a job through an agency and comes on playing a part reading a script says buy a ford or if a car expert on youtube whose entire world is cars, who's built a, an audience of millions of people in the car space, says Ford's where you want to go. You know, which of those is a more convincing argument? And that, you know, therein lies the, the, the debate that these advertisers have to have every day. Well, they have to have it because I imagine it still is sort of young enough that they don't know yet where the dividends are paying or do they? Uh, you, you know, some of it is, is, uh, is trackable. I mean, you, you know... From a TV standpoint, if you're used to marketing in linear television, unless you're running infomercials or DR spots, you're 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 doing awareness-based marketing. So your hope is that someone's going to see the commercial, and then when they're at Ralph's, they're going to buy your cereal, or when they're at the dealership, they're going to buy yeah. your car. It's hard to directly correlate. You're you're mostly basing it off of viewers and Nielsen ratings and the such. Same in YouTube, except that. There are even more direct ways that if you wanted to track ROI, if you wanted to add, embed a link or you wanted to have them, you know, throw to a clickable, trackable thing, you can. And so you certainly can make it more transparent. Um, but but at the end of the day, a lot of these these sponsors are it's awareness based marketing and trying to make sure their brand is top of mind and top of zeitgeist. And, and, and you know, it's just a great way to do that. 
So let's talk about your role in all of this sort of packaging, as we call it. So I'm a producer Mm -hmm. who has, you know, great talent in the home space, let's say. And they've been rejected by DIY and HGTV for whatever reason. But I know that they're great because they actually have a huge following already from their blog. Let's I'm just, you know, this is obvious. I don't have this, but this is very possible and happens every day. So I come to you, Alec, and I say, look at this couple. They've got this online following. You know, HGTV told them they're not interested. Now what? What do you do? Do you bring the brands to the table? Do you sign them up? And like, just talk about the process of how it all works. Yeah. So, you know, every talent is different and we evaluate them not based on, you know, just kind of what we see in writing, but we meet them, we talk to them, we get a sense for how big their audience is and, and, you know, where we see them going as a brand and so on. If we meet somebody that we feel you know, linear aside, if we're meeting them from a digit through a digital lens and considering them as a digital client, if they're if they've built a critical mass of of following, if they've created a, a consistent quality of content that we feel is brand friendly, if them as talent and as content creators are have have kind of in the aggregate become a brand that we are comfortable um, putting out there to the marketplace. Um, and, and if they are a, a, a business that we feel we can help scale into not just YouTube videos or, or Instagram videos or Facebook videos, but merchandising, licensing, and, and all sorts of other off-platform categories, then that's somebody that we take very seriously as a, as a potential client. And then what? So then you sign them, mm-hmm. and then what's next in terms of making it happen with them? So we have a team of eight people in L.A. and four people in New York that on a daily basis, we are on the phone with so many different brands and ad agencies and PR firms, and we are pitching um, different talent for different campaigns. In certain cases, we are creating the campaign or the series and pitching it. In certain cases, we are pitching them as a contender for something that pre-exists. But we are extraordinarily proactive, and we just start putting deals together. We also will work with a client and figure out all of the different areas that they want to be into. You know, So that might be publishing, merchandising, licensing, that might be acting, voiceovers, and and we work with them to help them move into each of those arenas. So let's say that one of your guys' ideas, whether you co-create it with the talent or if it's Abrams' ideas, you know, uh, Hyundai loves it and they want to jump on board, then what happens? Who's actually producing the spot, the series, this whatever it is? Like, how does it all come together? So in the in the digital in the digital landscape, um, the typically the talent themselves are the content creator and the the brand is is sponsoring content that they are uh you know the, the, they'll watch the talent's channel they'll make sure that they're comfortable with how they edit how they tell stories and and, and their audience but once all those those boxes are checked it's the talent that's really doing all the legwork and the brand is is typically sending over product and paying a fee and being integrated into the video so is there ever, I'm assuming the answer is yes, but is there ever a conflict where, you know, the talent feels like, no, that's not my brand, but they're offering, a, you know, a lot of money and you guys have to kind of step in? Like, how, what, what happens when that happens? Because I'd turn, like to think they don't just sign over their souls. No, we turn down substantially more offers on every channel than we accept. Really? And we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars a year that we turn down because, you know, the... The talent, again, their relationship with their audience is a very organic, authentic relationship. I think it's safe to say that the audience knows that they're not paying to consume the, the video on social in the same way that if you're watching, um, 
HBO or Bravo, you know that you are paying to watch it. And so there's just kind of different levels of expectations. But but if you know that you're not paying these folks on YouTube to uh, watch their content, they have to make money somehow. They have to produce the video. They have to get by. They have to pay rent or mortgage. So they are going to build monetization efforts in some capacity. It has to be organic, though. It can't be. It can't be at the expense of the content. And so, if a if a talent feels that the brand or the requested deliverables are at the expense of the content, or will will create a scenario that jeopardizes the relationship between the talent and their audience, immediately they'll say no. Okay. And then, um, in terms of the. Okay, so then how does Abrams get paid? How do you get paid? Do you get from the talent and the brand? Is it like a package fee? Um, no, we're typically, we represent the talent in, in nearly every circumstance. Okay. And, and we simply commission our clients as if we would in any other capacity. So give me a great success story of one of your clients who kind of started at zero and now they're, you know, incredibly famous and sort of a digital star. Uh, well, one of the, ta- so I left the agency business for uh, for almost three years. Yes, tell um, us about that. And and, and so I'll, I say that because I'll you know I'll give you Go a good back. answer to your question. Okay. But do you want me, where would you like me to? Oh, uh, okay. Well, let's finish the success story, and then I do want to go back to the to the little break and what you did during the break. Okay. So <laughs> when I got back, um, one of the first digital talent that I started working with, and we were working with digital talent before I left, but one of the first that I started working with when I got back is a brand called uh, Mr. Kate. It's a channel called Mr. Kate that's primarily a YouTube uh, audience. When I started working with Kate uh, and her husband slash business partner slash on-camera star, Joey, uh, this would have been 2012. They were, you know, a few hundred thousand subscribers, maybe three, four hundred thousand subscribers tops, a small channel, all things relative. And, but had this amazing aesthetic and this amazing creative, really cool content in the DIY lifestyle space and, and homes and interiors. So were they rehabbers? They were just, you know, she, she had a history of doing all sorts of, of, uh, design projects as an interior designer, but what they do is that they'll come in and, and they'll, they'll show you anything from how to, you know, to, to rehab something amazing that they'll find at a flea market to making over an entire house Got it. Um, and, and everything in between. And so, you know, that's a channel that that we've really been working with for the entire run of digital being monetizable. Mm-hmm. Um, and and over the years, they you know they now have an audience in the seven figures. They have uh, a, a revenue stream in the seven figures. They have an incredible the leading home brand on YouTube. We have moved them into licensing. We've helped them with merchandising. You know, they're they're doing fantastically in the publishing space. Um, we're working with them on a variety of other product lines. And, you know, they, they, we've, we've helped them secure an arrangement with uh, Scripps where they produced content for Scripps Digitals as a digital studio. You know, we, we, we have worked with them to, you know, and, and, and they're just fantastic, but we've really worked together to create this, this machine, this, this empire. And that now they're being recognized by Forbes, they're winning awards. So you know that it's just a great example of of collaboration between an agency and a talent, and and really building a very very meaningful brand that we're we're barely at the start of this the the story that will be told about about Mr. Kate, um, but it's been a phenomenal success, and they've come a long way. That's a great great example, and and it it begs the question just because of you know, a lot of what we talk about on the podcast and just in our unscripted businesses, you know, 
do you, is there absolutely no incentive for Mr. Kate then to go have a show on HGTV? Well, so if you, if I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer your question a little bit broadly in so much as uh, ratings and demos, but yeah, your from, from a broad sense, YouTube viewer is 13 to 24 years old. Mm-hmm. Your television viewer is 24 to 54 years old. So they found a really young audience in the space. Which is- well, yeah, but I'm just saying like in general, so this is where this becomes kind of an issue is, oh, okay. is those demos, if you were to look at the Venn diagram, 13 to 24 and 24 to 54, literally don't even overlap at all. <laughs> right. Um, and so not Mr. Kate specifically, but your average YouTube talent, even if they have 10 million fans in from the YouTube ecosystem, it's not that, that that's going to necessarily be of value to TV right. or vice versa. When, right. when you've taken people like Ashton Kutcher or other main celebrities from traditional media yes. that are big in the 24 to 54 and put them on YouTube, same thing. It didn't necessarily convert. Right. Like Grace Helbig was an example right. who was huge on digital and then her E show flopped. It yeah. just, the audience didn't doesn't care about They're just TV. different people. Yeah. And so um, it, that said, if you are in the merchandise business, mm-hmm. um, like Kate, and you know you've built a very very healthy merchandise business in the uh, in your demo. There's certainly value to also being seen and exposed to a different demo if you are creating content and merchandise that also appeals to them. So there is upside, but from a creative standpoint, again, we're you know we're, we're there's that point of friction, and again, you know, Kate aside, just in general, if talent. Uh, you know, Mr. Kate or or anyone else are looking to kind of move from the the YouTube or digital landscape into linear, but it's at the expense of their freedom, their exclusivity, their ability to do other brand deals, their ability to kind of keep making content the way that they feel content should be made. It's a lot to give up for a few grand an episode. And so it's, you know, I think- It's really interesting. I wonder if like the, you know, Christina and Tarek, of the world flip sure. or flop are salivating like why don't we do it that way <laughs> you know because probably at the end of the day if you do the tally and like you said the freedom that comes with it the the all of the revenue streams that you're able to hit it seems like digital if if it works obviously if it works. And there's it probably a lot that don't work doesn't work for everybody and and on your depending on your age uh you may just not be in the demo to appeal yeah. to the digital audience but if you are and you can build an empire that way you know as you know in the tv business, if you have a show that lasts five to seven years, you have a hit. Oh, yeah. But at the end of that seven years, the show goes away, yeah. the talent go away. And, you know, there, there are very few that successfully cross over. And, and you know, at the agency, we try and make that happen all the time, but right. it's tricky. And networks are funny about the way they, um, you know, they'll put their stink on a talent and no other network will want to touch them. And so it becomes a very proprietary or, or, you know, everyone wants to discover the next great thing. And so if you are talent that is on a network, have a great run and the show gets canceled, your ability to keep monetizing in perpetuity is very, very limited. Whereas if you control your own kind of destiny, you create your own content and you can keep doing it as long as you want to keep doing it, you, you can really ensure a much longer, you know, career. So I, I have a daughter who's almost 10. So I, uh, for good or for bad, I'm exposed to a lot of these sort of young digital stars sure. a lot because that's what she she's done with TV. She's now YouTube, Musical.ly, Lively, Snapchat. Yeah. And, you know, I don't 
let her go on these for extended periods of time. She need to put that out there, but um, <laughs> but I it's it's good for me, like to see what's sure. up, you yeah. know. And so, um, but what's fascinating to me is that some of these kids that have become legitimate stars mm-hmm. are horrible. I mean, in my opinion, have zero in, talent. Some of it I get. In your opinion. Right. But some of it I get. And again, I'm watching through adult eyes. And I'll ask yeah. her, like, why? What do you let, you know? And, and some of it's like these twins on Musical.ly, Lena and Lena from um, Germany. They're huge. They have like 19 million followers. And um, they're adorable. And they do these great videos. I, I totally get it. You know, but then they have these. There's this baby Ariel who's got, you know, a gaz- I don't know if you've heard of her. And, sure. and to me, she's just like, I don't get it. Yeah. So. For you, and you know, you're not 19 or, or 13 or 10. Like when you look at these digital stars, can you kind of predict who's going to break out, or can is there some type of um, common denominator that you see of like who are the ones that are going to break out versus the ones that are either trying too hard or are just going to fall flat? Well, you know, I mean, conveniently, we're in a position where we have such a an established and fantastic client base digitally. We're not looking to break people anymore where we represent people once they've become successful. Okay. Um, and, and so our average client runs from on the low end, a million subscribers yeah. to anywhere from, you know, 10, 15, 20 million subscribers. Right. Um, so we're not spending a lot of our bandwidth on, on sick, taking somebody that just started a channel or, right. or has tens of thousands and, and hoping it, grow, it works. Yeah, they're already big. We're, ours are already big. Um, that said, it's it's like anything. I, I mean, we certainly over the course of my career have have been a part of shows that in the linear landscape that I'll watch them and and genuinely just say I don't get it. I'm thrilled that the ratings are through the roof, but I'm not in the demo and I don't get it. In the same way that that you know digitally, it's this you know you look at a channel and I'm not in the demo. I'm not if it, if a channel has been built to appeal to young kids, it's it's never going to work for me in the same capacity. But when you when you watch the engagement and you watch the, the the fan base and you watch how it's all kind of growing and the audience is glowing, then then sure you watch that magic and it makes sense. But but the content doesn't always appeal to me. Right. But you have to have your finger on that pulse. I mean, you have to know that now musically is the biggest thing out. Hundred percent. You know, like that's part of we, your job. We have at our agency, and I think we're the only talent agency that that provides this. We have built a digital studio, and our clients have unlimited access to that studio with editing and and shooting and green screen and production and cameras and all that. And we actually broadcast out of that studio every week, musically shows and lively shows and and shows with partners like Entrepreneur Magazine and so on. So it's very much a part of our life. But again, I'm not in that demo. Now, my team is on average mid-20s, the the folks that work in my department, which is when I started in the business, you started in the mailroom in your lower to mid-20s. You hoped by 30 you would be a junior agent or some level right. of coordinator or maybe a young agent. Yeah. But now in the digital landscape, you know, 23, 24, 25, 26 years old, that's perfect age for an agent in the digital landscape. And, and Interesting. you know, that dynamic has certainly changed as well. And, the, you know, they're in the demo. They're watching the stuff, not because work tells them to. Like, this is what they're watching. This is their they are organic fans. Well, and also it's interesting you bring that up because I imagine sort of back in the day, you know, you had mentors who were older that you looked up to had sort of come up through the ranks. And now you're probably these younger people are probably in certain ways your mentors because they are really where it's at and in this space. Right. Sure, And and, and I'm only 37, but I feel <laughs> substantially older. <laughs> your grandpa. Right? Yeah. I mean, you know, like 
when I was 23 starting in the agency business, 37, you know, felt like a young agent. But now that I'm 37 and most of my agents are 25, um, I feel, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. Did you always want to be an agent? Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be growing up in Cleveland because the, the job didn't exist. The industry right. was right. was essentially non-existent. The agent world, certainly. It never crossed my radar. But when I did my due diligence on the industry in general and was making my move out here, it sounded interesting. And so that's how you started. You started at Abrams, right? I did. I um, It was a very cliche story, but, you know, I was I was I had a very entrepreneurial background in Ohio, but I was... Uh, I was bored. And so, you know, we decided to just kind of sell our stuff, me and my girlfriend at the time. Um, and and we sold our stuff and got in the car and just drove across the country. And I threw, uh, I kind of spent hours and hours and hours online finding access points to the UTA job list, which I was told somehow in some, you know, bulletin board or chat room that that was how you got hired in Hollywood. <laughs> right. Um, and so I started submitting my resume from the road as we drove. And I was able to line up two job interviews on the day that I got to LA. Incidentally, both of them are in the building across the street from where we're sitting now. Um, and, and one of them was Abrams Artist Agency. So within two weeks of moving to LA, I started in the mailroom at Abrams Artist Agency and, and gave it a shot. And, and all of the things I'm doing now, reality TV, licensing, digital media, didn't exist at Abrams. And so there was no way for me to predict what I was going to be doing. Reality wasn't even really a thing. Digital certainly wasn't a thing. Right. And licensing has always been a thing, but not something our company did. So it's just kind of evolved. So then you left about six years later and talk about what you did then. So when we were seeing, or I was seeing the the, the digital explosion and, and the fact that again, um, and, and I will, I want to make it clear, I don't, uh, I don't support certainly any of, of Tequila, Tequila's more recent uh, oh God. statements and beliefs, but but I do respect the fact that she was such a pioneer in the space. But when I saw people like Tila Tequila come onto the landscape through social, and my department was starting to have success setting up TV shows based on characters we were finding on, in the, the MySpace ecosystem, I just I needed to dig into that further. So I resigned from Abrams in in September of two thousand nine. Uh, I, I helped co-found a company called Gotcast that was a social media-based talent incubator. And really the idea was MySpace was this great breeding ground for talent, but it was also full of wedding videos and funny puppy videos and all sorts of other things. We really wanted to streamline the talent search. So we created this ecosystem. I got all these casting directors, Hollywood execs, studios on board, a lot of brands involved. We ultimately uh, aggregated over seven hundred and fifty thousand talent into this platform. Wow! Um, it was you know it was an early stage, for lack of a better kind of comparison, like an MCN type business. Right. And we were selling brands against them, creating user generated content campaigns, and and you know it was a really fun world. But that was what I was doing for the next three years, and then you know we we sold out of that at the end of that, and and. I, somewhere along the line, got involved with consulting on a couple of reality shows um, that both exploded into being two of the biggest successes ever. And Which so, were? Uh, Duck Dynasty. I've heard of that. And uh, Gold Rush. Right. So, you know, somewhere in that process as I was transitioning out of my role at Godcast, Gold Rush had become the largest and highest rated show at Discovery Channel. 
and still is uh, years later. And and Duck Dynasty was quickly becoming the most successful unscripted show ever. Yeah. And I represented the casts of both shows. Wow. And so I got sucked back into the agency business and uh, incidentally through the linear lens, but it also happened to be great timing coming out of what I was doing. Right. Because merchandise, licensing, merchandising, all of that. And well, and also just, you know, Godcast was, was this kind of huge community of digital talent. And so, you know, I, I, when I came back fast and furious and, and was simultaneously launching unscripted and digital, uh, and, and it was, you know, it's been great. So do other agencies, um, sort of the big guys, uh, like, you know, CAA and WME and UTA, et cetera, do they, have they tried to sort of model what you guys have done for themselves and do all of them have, is it competitive the way it is normally in, in the linear landscape? Um, you know, I would say that, uh, that Abrams Artist Agency, you know, we 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 just experienced, we just had our fortieth anniversary um, last month. Wow! So it's exciting. We've been around for a long time. Um, <laughs> older and, than you? Older than me. Uh, and 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 I think a tenant of the building across the street longer than probably I've been alive. <laughs> um, but for for you know much if not all of that four decades, Abrams has always been a top ten agency, and so. You know, when, when they were looking to sign in, in many of the divisions, some perhaps rank higher by department in that range of 10 than others. But um, they've always been a very well-respected top agency. But there's been a lot of competition. There are a lot of agencies that are really in that top tier. Um, digitally speaking, there are there are less. There, there, are, there aren't 10. There arguably aren't even six agencies that are really in the space in a meaningful way. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, part of it is, is just uh, convenient because we have less competition and part of it is we've been at it for over a decade, which is why we don't have in that particular area as much competition. Um, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a certainly a very competitive landscape, but there are a lot less people to compete against, which is, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, but that probably will change, right? I mean, it, I would think it'll change in so much as more agencies will have digital divisions, and and you know we're seeing on a monthly or quarterly basis more agencies moving into that space. But you know, knock on wood, it'll be for our sake harder and harder and harder for any of them to catch up. In the same way that if if a, an agency that doesn't have against sports or or theatrical or some or unscripted launch now and tried to catch up, it's you know the landscape becomes more and more secure. No, nothing is ever set in stone, but but we've been at it a long time, and and we're we're fighting hard to kind of keep our place in in you know the top of that that pack. But I would say that you know what, what's very different about us is it, it the other you know three you know if, if UTA, uh, WME, CAA type agencies that that you know you'd mention they're they're set up you know you know pretty siloed, meaning that my department. Which, which encompasses three different areas at each of those agencies. And I, and I believe they all have all three of those areas. Each have them as very siloed, different departments. Um, and so just because you're a priority to the digital team doesn't mean that Unscripted has you as the same level of priority. Yes. And vice versa. Not because, no fault of the agent, right. but they have their own client list. They have their own buyers. They have their own priority. It is difficult to service everybody from every department all of the time. We've set it up very intentionally in a way that um, the, like there are very similar playbooks to building out the 
uh, career and and licensing and merchandising and off-platform business of an unscripted personality uh, as compared to a digital personality. So we have a team that understands both. We have a team that understands licensing because that's kind of a tangential offshoot of those businesses and so on. So you are, if you're a priority to my department, you are getting very, very real uh, attention in all those areas. And anybody that we sign is a priority to our department. So, you know, we're we're just working in a very different way and offer a very different suite of services. So in terms of producers, because a lot of producers listen um, and I'm a producer, how I think the question on a lot of people for a lot of companies and independent producers is like, how do we get into digital? What what do you do? So like, sure. what is the answer to companies that want to expand into, into the digital space? Where do, where do you start? It's a good question. Um, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, there isn't a good answer. Tell us, Alex. Because this is the first time that the talent is also the producer. Mm-hmm. So unless you have a very good value proposition for a talent that's already making millions of dollars a year producing and editing their own content, there isn't room for you in that equation. Um, and so you can either try and leverage the talent, the talent into linear, but that's really not you playing in the digital landscape. Right. Or you can try and get involved in creative ways in uh, in uh, gaming or esports or or launching your own product verticals and, and, and content verticals and so on. But mm-hmm. there isn't a good answer yet. Okay, fair enough. So what are your personal goals for your career in the next five to 10 years? Well, you know, the, the space that uh, I, I've, I've been very fortunate in so much as when I started my career in 03, that was like really the year that 03, 04 season was when reality TV, in my opinion, really just kind of took off. You know, that was, that was the beginnings of Simple Life and and Idol and yeah. and all these shows, the Osbournes, that really just exploded and set the pace. And I got to ride that, and and it was amazing. Um, and it's still a very mature, wonderful business. But like that first few years from '03 into that decade were an amazing ride, and we got to build out this this fun business. And I've been super fortunate that you know the digital uh, wave I've been able to kind of be at the front of and and, and ride as well. Um, I'm hoping that that on behalf of, you know, for my my own just kind of enjoyment and for my career and on behalf of Abrams Artist Agency, we can keep identifying more and more of those waves, waves to, to, to ride and new businesses to build. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly uh, getting very heavy now into the gaming and esports space. We're certainly building into the virtual reality and 360 space. We're certainly building more aggressively into you know, helping our clients launch businesses. A lot of our digital clients, you know, there, there comes a time where you've made so many millions of dollars that you're not necessarily just looking for the next beauty company to give you 10 or 20 grand. You want to launch your own brand. Right. And so we're helping a lot of our clients do that. And so, you know, it's becoming more of an enterprise uh, business of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to someday see us, you know, with a, a venture fund that we can help support our clients' initiatives and, and actually invest in. So there's a lot of really exciting things that, you know, we we are already starting to get involved with or are involved with that I think are going to be the next five or 10 years worth of explosions and then exciting waves to ride. Um, but but certainly not at the expense of, you know, our reality business is a, it continues to be a main priority and it's a fantastic business. Our digital business is a priority and it's a fantastic and growing business. Um, and the others are just going to become supplementary and complementary. So interesting. So I have stock questions that I ask at the sure. end of every interview. So the first one is, um, what is your 
proudest accomplishment? Proudest accomplishment is probably, you know, being able to move out from Cleveland knowing absolutely nothing about entertainment at all, but but upon getting here quickly, kind of identify unscripted as a place to be and build that out for Abrams Artist Agency who who didn't have that division um, at exactly the right time. And then again, to do it all over again in the digital space, it's, it's, it's doing everything I can to be, you know, on point with, with where things are going and, and hopefully ahead of those curves. And again, we've done it twice so far and I hope to, to do it more. And do you have any regrets? No, uh, I think, you know, I, I honestly, who knows if, if I'd be in a different place had I never left Abrams for those few years. But at the same time, it, it got me so much exposure to the venture capital world, to the startup world. I met some really smart people um, and I and I got a better sense for the digital space that, you know, if I had started that company a year or two later, maybe that would have sold for a ton more money like Maker Studios and all the other businesses did. If I'd never left that business, if I left Abrams to go start that business, maybe, you know, Abrams would be even further. Who knows? Yeah. But I have no regrets and, and it's been, uh, it's been amazing. And, and what was the greatest lesson you learned from doing that company? From, from Godcast? Yeah. Um, you know, it was the most, one of the most exciting, but certainly the most stressful time in my life. <laughs> Um, and, and I learned that, you know, it, not just being in charge of biz dev and growth and all those exciting things that I get to do every day of my life, but also being in charge of paying the rent and, and covering health insurance and then keeping the staff, you know, employed. I learned a lot in that, in that process. And, and it, you know, frankly, it gave me even more respect for entrepreneurs and people running businesses, um, Harry Abrams, my boss, who was the first person in, in LA to give me a shot when I was 23 years old and, and, you know, fresh out of my Toyota Camry and, and, and no idea what I wanted to do or what I could be capable of doing. Um, he's been doing this for 40 years, keeping this incredible company afloat and, and, you know, in, in, in a very high level of success and, and keeping, you know, so many people employed in both LA and New York, you know, it certainly helped me appreciate how amazing that is and how incredible that is. And, and, um, so, you know, I learned a lot in that, in that world and, and, uh, you know, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, it does. And it did. Another question is what are your top three favorite reality shows that you watch? Um, oh, that's a good question. I, I, at any given point, I'm more likely to be watching shows that my clients are involved with right. because it's also, you know, it's helpful. Um, I do watch a lot of Gold Rush. You know, I've been involved in that show since since the first season, and it's just a really nice, fantastic show. Mm-hmm. I do watch a lot of Wicked Tuna, which is a show that I represent the cast of and have been involved with for a long time. Um, and, you know, lately I've been watching a lot of uh, live PD on A&E, which my client's an executive producer on, and just kind of a really interesting, innovative uh, Dan Abrams? concept. I, I represent Kara Kurtz. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I didn't know if Abrams was a connection oh, to no, Abrams. No. <laughs> do you... Um, all right, here's one. This is not one of my stock questions. Sure. So one of your clients is Brandy Glanville. Yes. And I'm a big Housewives fan okay. and, and um, listened to her podcast before. Tell us something about Brandy that would surprise people. So, you know, in the Housewives world, uh, they give balance where, be it Lisa Vanderpump, be it Kyle, be it whoever on that show, you see them in those moments where they're they're fighting, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're drunk, they're crying. <laughs> 
But then you see them at home with their kids uh, giving advice on, on weddings or teaching them, you know, doing homework. With Brandy, because of her um, her divorce, which is very public and, and uh, drama-filled situation, and because of just disagreements between her and her ex-husband on what the kids are allowed to be seen on and, and uh, do, no one ever has actually seen the side of Brandy where she's at home with the kids, cooking dinner, doing homework, teaching them, doing all of the things that you got to see and still get to see in all the other talent. And so, you know, I think the first part is just knowing that side of her altogether exists because she's a wonderful person. She's a fantastic mom. She is every day, I'm when I'm talking to her, she's either on her way to drop the kids off at school or picking them up from school or doing homework with them. Like that, no one has ever seen that side of her. And, you know, separately, if you were able to see that side of her, I imagine that Housewives would have would have taken a very different turn as at least as it relates to her storyline, because, you know, unfortunately, all you ever got to see was the yelling, screaming drama, you know, drinking side that you got to see all the other ladies. But that was the one note of Brandy. That's a great point. I'm going, I wish I could see that side to her because it, I'm sure awesome. it exists. Yeah. Well, this has been such an interesting, amazing conversation. Thank you so much yeah. for being my first agent client. My pleasure. My, not client, guest. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, and I really appreciate being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. 